0: Only God could maintain a drama that stretches over thousands of years as if they were days and hours. Only God could build a story where the end is anticipated from the beginning, where the guiding principle is not chance of fate, but promise. Human authors write fiction around a plot they devise, but only God can shape history to its ultimate purpose. For 12 weeks, we are going to cover the story of the Bible and if you're seeking God or you haven't found, and haven't found him yet or you're, you're a Christian or brand new Christian or just starting, I'm trying to help you put this whole book together in the next 12 weeks. Seems simple. Uh, the Bible, you know, is quite a diverse book if you've ever read it, written in three languages. I mean, mostly two, Hebrew and Greek with a little bit of Aramaic uh, just thrown in. There's a variety of of kinds of books. The length goes from a single page to a small book. So, is it a collection of stories that just kind of are disjointed, or is it one story with many parts? Today, we start in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. And if you grew up in church, you may have recited every single week I believe in God, the Father Almighty. What's the first thing? maker of heaven and earth the opening lines of the bible in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth december 1968 apollo 8 is going or is orbiting the moon and what does the astronaut say bill anders in the beginning as he's overwhelmed god created the heavens and the earth a simple statement now before i jump in i have a, a heart about uh, this issue in particular What do you do with Genesis 1 and 2 and the collision of modern science? And my heart in this is that many people have walked away from the Christian faith because of their perceived interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. That is, Genesis 1 and 2 supposedly is verifiably wrong, and therefore Judaism and the Christian faith is wrong. And you know, if if you believe in a young earth, which Genesis, you know, if you read in a certain way, uh, then you believe in a young earth, the earth is about 6,000 years old, but pretty much every single place you go, you hear, and then 10,000 years ago, and 50,000 years ago, and 1 million years ago, and 1 billion years ago. And so the book of Genesis becomes a battle over the Bible, and I get worried about that. I get worried about that just because of when I talk to people, they're worried about it. One proponent, for example, is Ken Ham. And if you know uh, anything about Ken Ham, he, he doesn't have black and white. He doesn't have gray. Uh, he writes this. What is at stake in reading Genesis is nothing less than the authority of the Bible the character of God, the doctrine of death, the foundation of the gospel. And the, if the early chapters of Genesis are not literal history, then faith in the rest of the Bible is undermined, including its teaching about salvation and morality. In other words, if you believe anything other than his interpretation, you have given in to liberalism and you're an atheist. He'll say later that no one up until even the 1800s Believed in any other view but a seven-day creation and that it's modern science that has pushed onto us different views of Genesis. I'm just going to highlight a few things for you as you think about this and then I'm going to do the sermon uh, because I just, sorry, there's two sermons today. It's the longest, this is going to be long. I, that's okay. There's 30 minutes in between services. You can handle it. Um, number one, I think the word literal has been hijacked. The word literal for most people means accurate, or it means my interpretation upon reading the text that plainly says this in my head, right? Number two, there are many scientists who are Christians. There are scientists in this room. There are are rocket scientists in this room. There are paleontologists in this room. There are physicists in this room. There are many scientists who are Christians, and there are many scientists on both sides of this issue who are Christians. Number three, when you hear your pastor talking about science, you should be concerned. <laughs> uh, you are not hearing from an expert. I hope you know that. And so you sometimes hear these pastors come up, and they're talking about the second law of thermodynamics. They can't even spell the second law of thermodynamics. I can't even say it. It's barely coming out of my mouth. And so you, all of a sudden, the pastor becomes like this. Ah, well, I'm going to tell you why science interp- you know, is, holds my position. The pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. He's copying somebody else. And so I come to the text and I go, okay, I'm bending my entire will to, thus saith the Lord, what does the text say? And now I'm supposed to have a PhD in science. That's not going to happen. The longer I talk, the more you realize what my grades were in high school. And the more you decide, wow, Darren, you should not be talking about that. And you know what? Neither should most of you. Four, science can correct our reading of scripture. You know what the most famous example is? Copernicus. Martin Luther, John Calvin, the reformers, the people who started Protestantism, thought Copernicus, Copernicus. see, I can't even say scientists' names, was an idiot, was a fool. He believed man's science over God's word. Why? because he thought that the earth was not at the center of the universe. And so they're quoting scripture, and you're obviously wrong. Nope. And there have been many Christians, last one, who have, who have not held a young earth view of the universe and, and of the earth, dating back to the 300s. Augustine was one of the first, B.B. Warfield, the the defender of the inerrancy of scripture in the 18th and early 19th century, didn't believe in a younger. So I just say all that to say uh, the longer you stare at it, the more complicated it gets. And the question comes down to what is Genesis 1 and 2? What genre is this? How, How are we supposed to interpret it? So I'll just throw out some things as you try to figure out how to interpret this. Number one, if you go to a religion class across the street, or really any religion class in a a major university, they'll say Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 contradict. And you know what? If you read them the same way, they sort of do. But do you read all chapters the same way? For example, Exodus 14 and 15. Exodus 14, the the God's people cross the Red Sea. Exodus 15, the song of Moses and Miriam. What does the song say? By the blast of your nostrils, the waters rose. Is that literally what happened? How about Judges 4 and 5? One is a narrative. The second one is a song. You have the stars fighting against God's enemies. Was it stars? I mean, Judges 4, didn't you say stars? But then you have this song in Judges 5. You have Habakkuk 3. The sun and the moon stood still in the heavens as the glint of your flying arrows went. The, the sun and the moon stood still at the glint of your flying arrows. You read the whole chapter, you're like, it's poetry as a historical event. So you get to the language of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and you realize it's a lot different than the rest of Genesis. And Genesis 1 through 11 is written a lot different than Genesis 12 through 50. And so it just gives you pause. And then there's all these quandaries that you run into if you say, well, this is happened in seven days. It's literalistic. You have to take it that way because the Bible clearly says, anyone says the Bible clearly says. Okay, listen. No. Here's some issues. There are lights before lights. Day one through three, God creates light. Day four, He creates stars. Where is the lighting coming from? How does gravitational force work? Does God just kind of suspend gravity as the earth is being created and then here come the stars and now there's gravity and then what do you do with the earth? Does He just suspend it? And then here comes the sun, and then he goes, Okay, now you're orbiting, and I'm gonna throw it. What do you do with predatory animals? Did the animals in the fall, you know, since there's no death, uh, grow teeth? All of a sudden there's, oh, there are lions, and here and now they're gonna have teeth and they're gonna be attacking each other. What do you do with day six? Listen to day six. Adam's created, all the animals are named. He feels lonely. He falls asleep. Eve is created. He wakes up. He finds her. He marries her. And he receives God's commission. All in a day? What about just reading it? You know, day one is filled by day four. Day two is filled by day five. Day three is filled by day six. It's clearly artistic in some way. And even reading Genesis 1 1 versus Genesis 1 2, it's hard. Like, is Genesis 1 1 like the title? Is it a separate event? Uh, do you put like a, a hash mark on it? The point is, the longer you stare at it, the harder it gets. That's what happens with a lot of Scripture, right? Like you, you think you see it, and then you read it, and you read it, and you read it, and you, and you realize, I should not tie my interpretation of Scripture on this issue to the faithfulness of all Christians for all time for 2,000 years. And so we're just gonna try to read this with a little humility. I just wanna show you some non-negotiables and I wanna show you that a God of love is declaring his creation good and that it is incomplete without community. I wanna show you that this is a God of love who declares his creation good that is incomplete without community, all in Genesis 1-2. Are you ready? God was love before creation, point one. Christian creation is not naturalism. It's not that the belief that the material universe is eternal and dependent on God. It's not pantheism that there's no uh, separation between the creation and God. Verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's distinction. God made everything. God created out of nothing. God has no cause. He just is. He is the one doing the creating. Here's the stress over and over again. Let there be this. This happened. It was good. Let there be this. This happened. It was good. And it's written in a world where there are a lot of competing views about how God created things and the God's created thing. I mean, the people of Israel have been living within polytheism almost their entire existence. And so here comes Moses Who's writing to people who have read the story or heard the stories of the gods fighting each other, the gods having sex with one another, and then having other gods, human beings being created out of the blood of gods or out of slain animals? And you have all these stories. And then here comes Moses and he goes, In the beginning, God, singular, by himself, no fight. And that becomes the heartbeat of Israel's religion, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And before creation, what was there? Nothing but God. In the beginning. So what was before that? There's no time. There's no space. There's no matter. There's only God. This is Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born and you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Even the psalmist is using time-bound language to describe that God has always been. And this God creates everything. You see his power on display. There's no fight going on. There's no war going on. There's no him saying, I created this and then another God came and tried to stop me. And then I created this and another God. None of that. It's that there is a God who is a reference for all of us. And he is an anchor for all the stability that we have in trying to explain everything around us. So why do I say a God of love before creation? Thanks for asking. Look down to verse 26. Let us make humans in our image, in our likeness. So God created them human beings, that's a singular. In his singular own image. In the image of God, he created them, that's a plural. Male and female, he created them, that's a plural. So what is going on? He can't be talking to angels. We're not made in the, in the image of angels. He's not taking counsel. Isaiah 40 says he, he does not take counsel. He does not ask questions like, hey, what should I do? Who's he talking to? Well, back to Genesis 1:1 1, 1 and 1-2. In the beginning, God and then there was the Spirit who hovered over the waters. That's interesting. Now that same verb is only used one other place in scripture. It's in Deuteronomy 32. This is a parallel to Genesis 1. I'm gonna read it to you. Like, I'm a nerd. Be a nerd with me for a second. Deuteronomy 32. In the desert land, he found him. So that's God speaking of Israel. In the barren and howling waste. Pause. That word howling waste is the exact same word for the empty void that the spirit is over. Same exact word. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle who stirs up its nest and, uh uh-oh, hovers. It's the only other time it's used. That word is used. It's a parallel. What this is saying is that the spirit is not uh, this kind of impersonal being, but it's, it's some kind of being that has a caring function where life is being brought forth. As a mother hovers over the nest where the babies are being born or being brought to life or kicked out of the nest eventually, so the spirit hovers over the empty vastness. He's also speaking by, he's also creating by speaking. He speaks and it's created that's Psalm 90, for example. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and he stood firm. So if, if you read the creation account, what does it say? And God spoke and this happened, it was good. And God spoke and it happened, it was good. But what kind of word can speak and do that? And so as you read the story of the Bible, the, the authors of scripture begin to say things about that powerful word. The first one is in Proverbs 8. Listen to this. I'm just going to read parts of it. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds, when he fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary and the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. Here we have the first personification of the powerful word of Genesis 1. Look what he's doing. I'm at his side. I'm filled with delight day by day, rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world, delighting in mankind. That word delight just means to dance. You see what's happening? The word is delighting in God. In creation, they're celebrating each other. I mean, don't you know that the very word Eden just means delight? Delight. And so who is this word? Well, guess what? The New Testament tells us. John 1.1, 1, 1, the personification of the spoken word in Genesis 1 is what? In the beginning was the word. What's he talking about? Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. It's Genesis 1.1 1, 1 in John 1. He was with God in the beginning. Genesis 1.1, through him are all things that were made. Without him, nothing has been made. And so you have the spirit hovering, caring, bringing forth life. You have God in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and you have his word. What is that? That's Christian Trinitarianism. The Father, Son, and Spirit together in creation, delighting one another, loving one another, being with one another. It's why, you know, Colossians later, all things were created through him and by him. This is what makes uh, us so so different from Judaism and from Islam and other religions. It's that God uh, was not alone, that he was in community, in love, from creation and before. In fact, later in John's, uh, in chapter one, it says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. Now, that word, closest relationship, is more literally rendered in the bosom of the father. You ever been in someone's bosom? You, you don't get in someone's bosom unless you know them, right? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> Come talk to me. Like, we're talking about, uh, like, a child nursing or an intimacy, intimacy with uh, amongst a couple, right? That's it. I mean... In John's gospel later, John, John throws this in at the Last Supper. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. It's the same phrase. We're sitting in his bosom. So John, who wrote this, goes, the one who he loved was sitting in his bosom. That's intimacy. What does that mean? John speaks of the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father. You have they're together within each other's bosom. That's love. That's love. So when you read the creation account, and you read that God created the heavens and the earth, the spirit's hovering, and he is speaking the word, and you trace that now through the story of the Bible, what do you find? God is love at the very essence of who he is. And he is delighting in himself and praising himself and enjoying himself and delighting in himself and the creation. God is love. All right, number two, God spoke a good creation. What does it mean that God created in the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when I think about creating something, I think about Legos. Uh, I've got some Legos and I create a set that, or with some rubber and some pieces, or you know, you're a builder and you've get, been given some rock and you make marble and then you've got a countertop or you're a painter, but in all those situations, you have something to work with. God didn't like God wasn't like holding planets and he was like, What am I gonna do with these things? You know, and like mushing them up like Plato. He he makes out of nothing. There's nothing. God speaks, and there's something. And over and over again, he declares it good. Verse 3: God said, Let there be light. God saw the light, it was good. Verse 10, and God saw it was good. Verse 12, and God's this is the land, and God saw it was good. Verse 16, after he, the two greater lights and the stars and day and night, and God saw it was good. Verse 21, he saw the creatures of the sea, and God saw it was good. Verse 25, he makes the wild animals, and they move along the ground. God saw it was good. And then he creates human beings. God saw what he had made, and it was very good. What is going on? What does good mean? When he looks at the sun and trees uh, and the animals, plants and us, does he go, uh, that passes? Is that what he's saying? Uh, good job, me. I did it. Or is he enjoying it? Like, I, I, I go to a concert and I say, that was good. Am I saying that passes or am I saying I enjoyed it? If I eat a steak at the, the right place in town, that was very good. What am I saying? I'm enjoying it. That's what God is saying. This is different from the Christian faith, right? Where I mean, nope, this is different from other religions and the Christian faith where creation is bad, you throw it off, it's an illusion, whatever it is. But what, what is creation uh, for the Christian? What is creation doing for us? It, it's singing. That's what it's doing. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory. What, what, is, what are the heavens doing? The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after f- day, they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge there is no speech there are no words no sound is heard from them yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the earth that's psalm 19 even if it's tainted which we'll talk about next week it's still singing and then he creates human these image bearers these speaking living breathing mirrors that are supposed to point to god talk about that next week Physi- you know god makes physical representations of himself while man makes, tries to make physical representations of God. Every, every culture, every religion has done this. I mean, why is it when you look at mountains, you're moved? Why? Why is it that you can stand by a stream and just listen to it? What is it doing? It's singing to you. It's declaring something to you. And in all of us, there is some sort of spiritual connection in some way that makes us long for something when we do it. Why do people hike up mountains for sunsets? Now, that puts us at odds with Darwinian evolution, which is all about power and pe- you know the people who, with the most power, survive. I, I love uh, honest atheists. One of them is uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, is what he says. Once you dispense of God, the good news is that you can do whatever you want guilt-free, no dread of retribution. If you get away with it on earth, you get away with it forever. But the bad news is is that when you dispense of God, you lose all intellectual basis for declaring things inherently right or wrong. Or you could say declaring things beautiful or not. What, what is beauty? What is it inside of you that looks at cornfields in the fall, that looks at a sunset, that stays up until one in the morning to just watch comets go through the sky. What is that? That is the creation singing to you. Paul will tell us later in Romans one, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, they have been seen, have been understood of what was made, has been made so that people are without excuse. That is, you can look at the creation, you know deep down something is broken and there is some creator behind it. And there becomes some desire within you to be like, I just wanna connect with that in some way. This is C.S. Lewis argument in his chapter on hope and mere Christianity where if, if you have a desire, desires are only exist because there is something to meet that desire. Like, you know, you're hungry, there's food. And so he says, if I find in myself a desire with no experience in the world can satisfy, the probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see that? Nature draws out of you this desire. It's built to say, my creator calls me good. That's what it's saying to you. And yet it's, it's not right. Something is wrong. Paul says it later in Romans chapter eight. The creation is, waits with eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration. That's Genesis three, not by its own choice, but by the will of who subjected it. On it goes, creation is groaning. You, you feel this? For creation, to be in relationship to God is to be declared good. And for humans, to be in relationship to God is to be declared very good. That, that's what the essence of being in relationship to God. But you know you are not very good. You're, you're far from it. And you know, looking at the creation, that it's broken. And so, there was love before creation. The God of love creates a world that declares, uh, you know, God calls me good. God calls me very good, but now last, God created a man in need of relationship. This is wild. So the climax of the creation is us. Ugh. And we mentioned this before, but when it comes to man, God refers to himself in plural for the first time. So everything is God, God, God. And then when it gets to us as humans, it's let us, which makes it different. Now, I just want to pull something out of Genesis 1 and 2 that you may not have noticed before. Honestly, I have not noticed this before. Have you ever heard people say, God is, a, God is all I need? Have you heard that? Like, we're supposed to say that as Christians, right? Like, God is all I need. He meets all my needs. When I'm in crisis, I go to God. Guess what? Genesis 1 and 2 teaches the opposite. So God is in community, in creation with himself. He we know the creation gets marred. Genesis 2, man is formed out of the dust, garden trees, animals. It's all good over and over again. Good, good, good. Good, good, good. Did I do it enough times? Good. One more. And very good. And then chapter 2, verse 18, in paradise, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper. So then every creature comes, Adam names all the creatures, one's not suitable, woman is created, what's the point? Well, God doesn't make mistakes, right? And so in Genesis 1-2, there's paradise, he gives man a purpose, he gives him a vocation. Adam has a perfect relationship, imagine this, with God and with the creation around him. He has total dominion over everything, he has the perfect quiet time. He has the perfect prayer life. If he says, Hey, God, let's go for a walk, God's going on a walk with Adam. And yet, God says it is not good for Adam to be alone. And God does not want Adam to say to him, You know what, God? I've got you. I don't need anything else. Some theologians have said Adam was lonely in the garden, in paradise, by himself. You, you try to wrap your mind around that. And you come to the New Testament and Paul makes the same arguments about the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12, the fact that God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So there it is, God's saying, don't say to another member of the body of Christ, God is all I need. I don't need you. He's actually commanding you not to say that. What does Adam need? Yes, this is about marriage and gender and sex and a whole bunch of other things. But just big picture, it's about human relationship, right? Adam needs someone different than him. Now the word helper, I'll just say, if you've been in uh, certain circles, that typically means errand runner, Uh, To some, that's not what women are supposed to be. Helper just means different than a guy. It means that, uh, you know, let's say I'm terrible at physics. I'm terrible at physics. I need help with physics. I need someone different than me to help me know something about physics so I can pretend to know about it in front of the congregation, okay? What is that helper doing? They're different. They have a certain amount of knowledge that I don't have. That's what that means. God meets the need of man through someone who's different. Now, remember this. God's very essence is community. God himself is community. God is in us in some ways and a me. You will never be fully the image of God by yourself. You, you can't. It's, it's marred in itself, but without another person, you, you just continue to mar it. You know, last this last week on Twitter, someone wrote these words: a high, you know, great source of truth, obviously. A high-value man is a bachelor in his fifties, child-free by choice, travels extensively, reads all the time, swims in a sea every morning, and enjoys the very best of life, unfettered by concerns and responsibility towards others. Ten million views. You know what that is? That's a sad life. A life of being alone. And you know what? That seeps into the Christian cult, our, our, our own Christian view of things of, you know, quiet time by myself, prayer life by myself, Bible study by myself. Uh, I need help. I'm going to fix it myself. And on and on we go. And yet you get to the New Testament, you get placed like Hebrews 3. See to it, brothers and sisters. None of you fall into a sinful, unbelieving heart turning away from God, but encourage one another daily. What's the basics of that? The basics of that is that you have friends that are around you enough to tell you the truth. That's not, I have a friend in California, God forbid, or in, you know, New York or in Florida or whatever, and those are my friends. No, they're not. They're not around you. They don't see you. They don't know you enough to encourage you daily. You need people That's what you were created for. And when you don't have this, what is the opposite of this? An unbelieving heart turning away. Look at Adam and Eve. Things are perfect and Adam is alone and it's not good. Proverbs 18, an isolated man is one who seeks his own desire. Men, you know that in particular. You get a guy who's just off on their own. They say weird stuff all the time they get weird the more isolated they get. And so they're, they're created, they're naked and unashamed. They're totally known. Now, I'm guessing not very many of you have studied nudist colonies before, uh, but I've met someone who is part of one. And what is the philosophy? It's that they can be completely open and they shouldn't be ashamed of anything. And it never really works, but they try. And that's essentially what Adam and Eve had. They were known completely God sees everything and there is nothing to hide between themselves and God and what's the climax of this whole thing is it gets you know that, that life is not like this anymore community are at odds with people we're not very good we know we are failures and we hide and we hide for all sorts of reasons and then we get to people uh, that like us and love us and we hide the things that we're ashamed of even the people we know but here's the gospel You know, it's one thing for someone who barely knows you to say, I like you or I love you. It's another thing to have someone who knows everything about you, even the things you hide, and say, I love you. And here's the gospel now. Jesus goes to the cross naked and shamed for us. All the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. The word comes, the word is the personification of Jesus and he looks at all your faults. He dies on the sixth day, the day we were created in order to create a new person, the word. stripped naked for us in our place. So don't you see what Genesis 101 is about? It's not a battle of the Bible, it's not. It's a God of love before creation. It's about a creation being called good. It's about a lonely man in paradise who needs people. It's about this desire we have inside of us to be declared very good, and that in Christ, for those who trust him, and the death on the cross, we are, in the end, declared very good by God. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Let's pray. Lord, everyone in this room longs to be declared very good. It's built in us and it's built in us to delight in the creation as the creation sings to us. You have been a God of love for all creation and you call us into that community of love and to display it here in a local uh, body of believers. Thank you that this church for 50 years has been displaying imperfectly in many ways the love of Christ that you have, you have for us and that we should have for others. Lord, may this... Uh, text not be a battle over the how, um, but a battle over why, why we were created. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.